It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, on this uh, these playoff football Sundays, I couldn't you know resist that. Of course, one of those is not there anymore. But sorry, Nick. But uh, it's good to be with you together and study God's word. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Second Corinthians chapter six. If you're a guest here today, we're glad that you're here. Before you leave, there's a card in front of you in the chair. It says, welcome guest. Let us know you were here. Tell us about your visit, something that we can pray for you about, how we can minister to you, or how you'd like to minister or know more about the things that go on here. Second Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 11. We saw last time as we were just getting into this section that um, one of the reasons I encourage you to be in the Word each day is that the Word of God itself is the primary means by which the Lord can bring about correction in course for those who claim his name. It is the main way the Lord does that. Uh, if you're thinking the Lord's somehow going to speak to you and tell you what you're doing is wrong when he's made it clear in his word, you're clearly mistaken. The word of God clearly tells us what he expects from us, how to live, and equips us for every good work. And so it's the way he has given to bring the blessings of obedience and to keep us far from chastisement. And we saw that the minister, which is what we're talking about now, those who minister, the minister is to teach the Word of God to accomplish those ends. It is the main way that that's done. And so we've begun this new section of chapter 6. This is the section dealing with hardship. This whole chapter deals with hardship in the ministry, the highs and lows. We just labeled it that way, the highs and lows of ministry. And specifically here, consistent admonition. And, and we've seen in a previous study, in, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the hardships and all the things that go on as part of the ministry and that the minister is required to bear up under, he still has a job of consistent admonition. That was really our, we got our feet wet last week to see that reliable correction. His first stop is always the word of God. That's where you need to be, dads. As we come into the spring, we start thinking about fatherhood and motherhood. Uh, the word of God is where you need to be. Reading to your children at night. I've encouraged many of you to do this. Read to your children every single night. Pray with them every single night. Be in the Word. Let them know that's, that's how you manage all of life's issues. That's how you're equipped for every single thing that's going to come along. Let them know that that's part of your life. Not just, hey, we're going to go to church on Sunday and we don't think about it the rest of the time. You want to raise godly children. You start when they're young, reading the Word to them, praying with them every single night. You will find that they will begin to seek the word themselves as they get older. And so that's my encouragement to you. It is the way that we know how to walk with him. It's the way that we're equipped. Now let's read together, starting in verse 11. We're gonna go all the way through chapter seven, verse one. Really, that's the section that is connected together. So we'll read it. Some of this we looked at last week, and so we'll just briefly review it, and then we'll move into our new section. Look at verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide, verse 12. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Verse 13, now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Verse 15, or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. Or what agreement, verse 16, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in the fear of God. Let's stop right there. The purpose of God of Paul's long commendation, uh, starting really in verse three all the way with verse ten, is to show, as we've read, no fault was to be found in his ministry, and he has stated his credentials again there in no uncertain terms. And he does that to really clear the ground for an appeal to them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And so he kind of sets the stage again. And every time he gets ready to do an admonition, he sets the stage. And so Paul calls them back and he calls them back. And it's part of our job to do that. And Paul says, I've continued to be candid with you. He says, I'm committed to raise every relevant issue with you. I'll say what needs to be said, no matter uh, what uh, gets said back to me. And I'm not protecting myself either. I'm not protecting my feelings uh, because our hearts are opened wide. Our hearts are open wide, he says. And, and uh, that was our next principle, a correction of admonition, which was to keep our hearts open in love. Say what needs to be said, keep our hearts open in love. Paul didn't insulate, he didn't shield his emotions, his feelings from the church, or, or even uh, though they caused him so much grief, and uh, he just said, listen, I'm gonna say what needs to be said, and then I'm going to keep my heart open in love. I'm not gonna hold anything back. He was just vulnerable as he's always been, and, and that's not gonna change, Paul says. And it's very remarkable that in spite of all the sorrow this church had caused Paul, his heart was not constrained. And when you, we saw last time, when you're doing the work of the ministry, and, and you see these, these, these uh, sections here, our mouth is spoken freely, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. You need to remember that in the ministry, it's, it's, it's the tendency is a, it's a temptation to abridge admonition, to not say what needs to be said because you really don't want to have back what's going to be said back to you. You, don't, you know that there's a situation you need to inject yourself into. Uh, you who are spiritual, uh, come alongside and correct the other one gently. Uh, you don't want to do it at all. Uh, you don't want to say what needs to be said or you do it and then you isolate yourself and just not care what gets said back and you, so you, you get rid of love or you get rid of what needs to be said and Paul says both have to be there because neither of that's true for Paul. He's an example of a faithful minister, one who is commended and then our next two verses really yield two more principles which we review uh, just briefly. Look at verses 12 and 13. You are not restrained by us, he says, uh, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. And so he says, you're not restrained by us. In other words, I haven't done anything to hinder this relationship. He says, you know, I have spoken candidly to you. I've done what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, not all relationship problems, we said as uh, last time, are a two-way street. Some are just singularly one person's problem. And Paul has been very direct with the church. He's told them what needs to be said. Obviously, uh, that obviously does not constitute hindering the relationship because he's spoken the truth in love that doesn't mean you're unkind it doesn't mean that you're not doing what you're supposed to do and uh, Paul says listen you're not restrained by us I haven't done anything to you to cause you to hold your feelings back uh, then he starts in the correction the admonition he says but you are restrained he said look there if you would by your own affections and this was principle number three in the lows of ministry of admonition and it is you have to consistently point out roadblocks to love and affection so in the church where there's some difficulty you have to kind of point that out he says listen you're you're restrained by your own affections you're not restrained by something i've done you believe the lies you put yourself in a narrow place uh, you squeeze me out paul says you've made your heart small you, you can feel the hurt here with paul as he really reveals his heart to him he says uh you know paul's open uh, his love likes to be reciprocated and so when it's not he's having a hard time and no doubt people would say about Paul you know you can't really love and say hard things to people and of course that's foolishness speaking things in love uh, proves love there's hardly ever any human upside when you go to interject yourself in, in these kinds of admonitions and help people to walk in holiness there's hardly any human upside initially 
Paul had to say the hard things of love to the church we saw last time, so it's, it's foolish thing to think that you know, when a minister has to say something hard, he must not love the church. So it's possible that the truth can be spoken without love, certainly, but uh, the second one is pretty hard to judge from the outside. Now, Paul had this fruit of the Spirit at work in him, but I don't think we can ignore the true affection that he had for the church. So he had love as a fruit of the Spirit. He loved them. He told them he loved them, and then he actually had uh, affection for them. And in some ways, like a marriage, you start to do love as a verb. The affections and feelings follow, and I think that's how it was with Paul. He did love as a verb. The church was hard on Paul. He loved them and prayed for them and did the things he's supposed to do in love, and the affection for the church followed. And that happens in a marriage a lot as well, beloved. As you uh, do the things of love, affection gets reestablished. And spiritual fruit was there. Paul did love as a verb. He also, you know, had affection for them, and that was undiminished. Now, Paul would not, would no doubt count uh, the hardship that he would receive, the, the things after he said something hard and somebody responds back to him, he would count that as a mark of the mission. Now look at verse 13, and uh, this is where we kind of wrapped up last time. Now, he says, in like exchange, I speak as to children. He says, open wide to us also. And this was our principle number four in the lows of admonition. And it is, you know, continue to push the church towards unity, provide opportunity for it to be demonstrated. Paul provided that for the church. He wanted them to, to open wide and continue to encourage them to do that. And, uh, and that compound down in return. So it's anti-misthos. So in return wages. In other words, recompense me back, Paul says, like I've been uh, loving you. Do the same back to me. Love and affection long for response, we saw, and, that, and, and that's what he means. I'm dealing with you. Uh, as I'm dealing with you, please deal with me that way too. So I speak as in children, it's the term in endearment, we saw, and, and Paul keeps his heart open, he continues to feel sadness of an unreturned love, and uh, he says, listen, uh, respond back. He wants them to learn how to love, to learn how to do it sacrificially. He wants them to learn how to do it consistently and openly. And, and this part appears to be very painful for Paul, and yet he continues to lead by example. He's asking for the love of a troubled church. He, he doesn't hesitate to plead for it. He points out the roadblocks to it. He desires to see the church pure and holy and unified and loving and, and avoiding the chastening of disobedience. And he's not afraid to love them enough to admonish them and to correct them when he needs to. And so they will respond the way they should. And that becomes an example then. As we think about ministry and the ministry that you need to do in that whatever influence the Lord has placed you, this is what, this is what ministry looks like. Now, let's give our attention to these next verses. They're closely linked, and they're going to take us to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 14, if you would. Uh, Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, just obviously, as we read that passage without any breaks, there are really five admonitions I think you can pick out there, right? You understand that's what we're talking about here, the lows of admonition. There are five at least there, uh, and some explanations added by Paul to help him understand the admonitions. But the five are really this, and you can look there back in your copy of God's Word. Don't be bound together with what? 
unbelievers. There's the first one, right? And that really is the one that, that brings the passage to life, but we'll get that to that in just a minute. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. What's the second one? Come out from their midst and be separate. Number three, don't touch what is unclean. Four, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. And then five was perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Those are the five things really Paul admonishes the church to do. So he set up, he set up the situation. He's given his credentials. They, he knows, uh, they know that he loves them and that he's not afraid to be candid with them. And, and so he, he embraces them and says, receive what I'm going to say, respond back in love. And so it also doesn't seem difficult to deduce the problem that Paul is addressing here. So as he thinks about the church and he begins to say these things, what's the problem that he's addressing? Well, really, it's a call to live apart from the, from the world, right? Isn't that exactly what he's saying? Come apart. Live apart from the world. It's, it's calling back from a life you once lived in the, in, in the flesh to the life Christ has called you to. And it is really the most basic and foundational of all the admonitions found in the Bible. I mean, it underpins nearly every other admonition we see in the Bible, as a matter of fact, certainly in this passage, but a call to be apart from the world is the main call back. It is the call we see all through the Old Testament, live apart from the world, live apart from the people around you, don't be like the people who are around you, live like those who are called by my name, and then we move right into the New Testament, and it doesn't change, right? You used to be this way, Paul says, but now you've been washed, now you've been sanctified, now you've been justified right? So come apart. This is, this, this is the, the, the underpinning of every other admonition nearly in the entire New Testament, all through the Old Testament, to come apart from the world. And, and it's clear from this passage that the Apostle Paul identifies really two opposing worlds, doesn't he? This is not news to you, is it? Because if you're walking and desiring to walk with the Lord and you're in the Word every day, this is going to be a constant issue for you, okay? Two opposing realms, Two spheres, two kingdoms, right? One's described and characterized by righteousness and by light and Christ occupied by believers in the presence of God. And the other is described and characterized by lawlessness and darkness and Satan and the demons and occupied by unbelievers in the presence of idols. And it's always that way with a few different modifiers, but it's pretty much that's, you can kind of sum it up that way. Two kingdoms, two realms, two spheres, utterly different, utterly distinct, completely incompatible, and conflicting at every point. And so discernment is super important here, beloved. As we come into this passage, I hope it's enriching for you. Uh, As I prayed over it early this morning, that I really wanted to be effective in just telling you what the Word says and that the Holy Spirit would be at work in your own heart as He has been in mine as we have to distinguish what's important and what are the things that are encroaching and what the actual admonition is. is, uh, Because we have to listen to it as much as know that we have to give it. What is the admonition addressing in your own life? So, two kingdoms. And Paul makes it clear as he endures in really consistent admonition, he says, here's the very first one. Let's look at it. And we're going to be here for a while, as you can well imagine, because it has a lot of application and it needs a lot of clarification, I think. Okay, so it says in verse 14, look there in your copy of God's word. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Heterozygeo, that's the compound verb, bound together. Heteros, another of a different sort. We understand that word. It's connected to all kinds of things the world uses today. Heteros, another of a different sort. And zugo is a yoke. So serving to couple two things together. 
And the idea here of the yoke is really foreign to us, but it was an implement used to bring horses or oxen together and hook them up in such a way as to be useful to pull farming equipment or transportation or whatever. I think you understand that. But here, its use in the term, really from the negative, says do not be, and directs the yoking to whom? Who are you not to be yoked together with? Very simple. Unbelievers. Okay? This is pretty clear. Now we're gonna, we're gonna define a little thinking. We can use the word of God, both what it says and then what it prohibits, I think, to help us understand uh, what it looks like. And that's what we'll do in the next few minutes. So as we look at the word of God, every time we read the word of God, every time we study the word of God, what's the first question we ask? What does the passage say? Okay, so what does the passage say? Don't be bound together with unbelievers. That's the command that sets the text in motion. What's the second question? What does it mean by what it says? Well, it calls really on an agrarian illustration. We can see that. Don't be yoked. That's an old word for us. We don't understand that as much anymore. Don't be yoked together. Unmistakable call for believers to separate from unbelievers. No one could miss that that's what it's saying. What does it, what, what is, what does the passage say? What does it mean by what it says? Be separated and don't be yoked together with unbelievers. I don't think anybody can argue with that. It's very clear, okay? Question number three, how does that apply? Here's the rub, right? So how is this gonna apply in my life? What, what situations is this going to uh, make itself manifest and I'm gonna have to respond in some certain way or to reject some certain opportunity perhaps that might come along? And that question really prompts principle number five, which you see up there. Really, in the ministry of admonition and correction, it's a call to call people back from the world. We've said that over and over again, haven't we? It probably is your primary job as a minister to continue to admonish people and to call them back. God is the same way. He's been that way all through the Old Testament, all through the New, calling his people back, calling his people back, and that's your job as a minister too, and our job to respond to Paul's call here. So, for believers, there can be really no compromise here. Uh, there is there's no possibility for people in these two kingdoms to be bound together. And here, here's a couple of illustrations in a common work, in a partnership, in some kind of fellowship. There's no harmony there. There's no commonality there. There's no agreement uh, really existing between the two worlds. That's the issue. And beloved, it's not a new admonition common only with Paul. There are a number of uh, passages that we could look at, but I just want to look at a few of them so you can see that this is something we've seen over and over again already. But in Romans chapter 12, of course, it's a very, very familiar passage that begins, uh, the section that begins to instruct the believer who uh, has, been, has been made positionally holy to begin to live practically holy. That's Romans chapter 12 is that break, right? We understand that because we went through verse by verse. When you get to Romans 12, you move out of the positional holiness to what does that actually look like? And then you move all the way through the end of, the, of uh, Romans, the letter, learning what it means to be practically holy. And that's the start. And here it is. This is, I think, the first uh, to help us understand about there's no, uh, there's no yoking together with unbelievers. Romans chapter 12, verse one, particularly the world, because that's the larger picture calling apart from the world. Uh, Romans 12, one says, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship and don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, just to sum it up, what? Make a clean break, all right? You're already, you're already like the world, be 
be transformed, be stamped into the image of the Lord, not into the image of the world. Make a clean break. And James calls the flock back in James 4. He's very clear about it. I think it's, uh, it's, it's a little harder on our ears to hear this. But James says to those who aren't making the break from the world, to those who are bound together uh, and the yoke with unbelievers, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And, and really, I think you can wrap it up in this way. People are trying to live in two different worlds. And God uses very harsh terms through James to describe the effort. He calls the effort adultery. He calls it hostility towards God. He calls it enmity with God. He calls them who do it sinners. He calls them double-minded. So trying to live in two different worlds and be friends with the world and be coupled together with the unbelievers, you get those names associated with that practice, and that is not good company, obviously. We hear the same thing from John and and, uh, 1 John 2.15. It's the most common battle that you wage as a minister. Verse 15 says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. So this gets right up where we live, doesn't it? It gets right up where we're personal, perhaps. Nobody really knows where we are in that whole whole process. But it says, don't love the world nor the things in the world. Paul says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. He says in Romans, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. He says in James, you're double-minded. Purify your hearts, cleanse your hands. Friendship with the world is hostility to God. And so here he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you can kind of pattern, see what the pattern of your life is. is if your life is really wrapped up in the things the world offers, if that's really the come all be all of your life, what I, I think it would be clear enough here to say that you won't be redeemed. You're not. I think that those are pretty, pretty clear terms. Don't love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of, the, of God lives forever. So just very clear, mutually exclusive worlds. You can't be in both of them at the same time. Two different worlds that have utterly nothing in common. No one really lives in both. Some people try, and they do it unsuccessfully, and the Lord uses words like you're double-minded about that. One is old, the other is new. One is earthly, one is heavenly, one is deadly. The other is life-giving. One is material, uh, the other is spiritual. One is filled with lies, the other with truth. Uh, One relates to the unclean, and the other relates to the pure. And, and Paul's message in this text is intended to make it very clear to all Christians that there's no possibility of living in both and sh- or shuttling back and forth. Now, I don't think it's a surprise to us as we think about the main job as a minister, as we think about the draw the world and the things that the world have on us, that after Paul said, I have and will continue to be candid with you, and, and I have and will continue to keep my heart open to you, that he starts his admonition here by calling them back from the world. Uh, the most common, the most difficult and, and consistent admonition battle that the minister faces, and this 
living in two world thing underpins everything that prompts words of correction in the church family. Everything. Inside the church family, when you have to bring words of correction, it always is underpinned by living in the world or being attracted by the world or being bound together in a relationship, in a yoked relationship with the world. It's always connected to that. I hardly ever say always, but I could say, I think, fairly clearly that anytime you have to make admonition in the church, anytime you have to make correction to people, it's almost, I would say, always connected to this. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, remember in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, uh, Satan says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And what did he say to him? All these, what, things I will give to you, right? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory connected to the kingdoms. He says, listen, I'll give these things to you. So in this particular instance, and all the way up until now, they are temporarily under his control. We understand that, right? He's the prince of the power of the air, and temporarily he's been given dominion here. And so he had him to give. And Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, denied himself that and took on the form of a servant, didn't he? And so here he is walking around in the body of a man in the incarnation, and Satan comes, and he has temporary uh, dominion over these things, and he says, listen, look at all the kingdoms of the world and all their wealth, everything that's with them, and I'll give them all to you, see? So he offers them to the one who created all things, and he thought they would be attractive to Jesus. Why? Because they are attractive to everyone else, aren't they? They're attractive to everyone else. So again, I don't think it's a surprise to us as we think about the main job of a minister then that Paul addresses this issue first. Some in the church were endeavoring to live in both worlds or at least to entertain worldly thoughts, passions, motives, whatever. And they had come to Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 17, the apostle Paul had stated, you know, if, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, right? And the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So salvation is called newness of life. And the Corinthians had entered into that newness and they had come to the new and the heavenly life and, and the life-giving spirit and, and all of that is true. And they had come into the kingdom that's characterized by righteousness and light and Christ and the presence of God. That's their position. But in practicality, right, they had some problems. Remember the problems Paul had to address up to this point in the two letters. In 1 Corinthians, he had addressed divisions in the church church discipline for flagrant marital infidelity that was going on right under the noses of people who were there. He had to take on drunkenness, believers taking each other to court, open immorality when you get to chapter six, marriage and divorce, chapter seven, misuse of freedom in Christ, chapter eight, chapter nine, you know, wrongful associations with idolaters and freedom in Christ and what you were doing and how that was harming the church testimony, remember all that? Incorrectly taking the Lord's table, misusing spiritual gifts, false gifts, you know, false doctrine concerning the resurrection. I mean, he had to go through all of these types of things, see? And our letter of 2 Corinthians was written really only a few months after 1 Corinthians, which was written only a few months uh, after the sorrowful letter, which we, we don't have a copy of that, but we, we, so we know it's this is consistent calling back an admonition to the church. So obviously, as we think of all of that, it's not surprising that it is here. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. And I've, I've given you the sense of it because it's so obviously foundational. I don't think I need to convince you of that. There, there was really no option of having a relationship of any intimacy with what was old and earthly and, and, and deadly and material and filled with lies, uh, what was lawless and dark and satanic and, and idolatrous. See, don't be bound together with unbelievers. 
Don't be yoked up with that kind of thing. That's a command. It may be the most familiar command in this entire letter. I think you knew it before we got here. You've probably seen it or heard it. And it is in the imperative. So it's not arguable. It's not like if you can or if you want to or it'd be good if you did. This is do not be. So if there's any time that we see a command that's in the imperative, then we have to figure out a way to make sure that's not true in our life, okay? Because that's how you respond to God's word. When you read do not, then you what? Don't, right? That's what we want our children to do, right? Do not do that. And if they do, chastened. That's how we want to look at God's word, see? Do not do that. And so we don't. Don't be bound together. It's the decree and, and which is clarified, I think, expounded, explained a little bit in the rest of the text. And we'll get into more of that later. But we really can't ignore that if, if it's connected to the world as a worldly process. So here's some examples. Because you're probably thinking, well, I work for an unsafe person and I go to a school with unsafe professors or I, you know, all right, we're going to clarify some of that, okay? Because we obviously know the, the word of God's not going to contradict itself. And if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the things that you need will be added to you. He, he says to work hard in the world and adorn the gospel. So obviously you have to make a living and you're supposed to provide for the needs of your family and there's no way for you to do that unless you're employed. So there's some things it doesn't include. And so you can rest easy uh, about some of those things. But if you think about things like this, like marriage, People say, well, I married an unsaved person that came to faith. Well, congratulations. You directly disobeyed God, and in his graciousness, he rewarded you with a safe spouse. I can give you a thousand examples how that didn't happen, okay? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Marriage would be a yoking up with an unbeliever. A business venture where you're getting together with some unsafe person and connecting to them, and you will be pulling along with the same yoke. A contract that binds you or yokes you together as equals with unbelievers of any kind, that would certainly be easily applied here, okay? You're unequally yoked and you're not to enter into that kind of relationship. So this is to surface, okay? We obviously know that that's how it's supposed to be. It's fairly clear here. I don't think we can really wiggle around any of the things I just said. There are some other things and we're gonna look at other passages I think that will help us clarify the other kinds of relationships that we have. Now, that's a lot to process, and beloved, I, I understand. It requires some thought. Obviously, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Uh, is, it's in the imperative command from Paul. It's an example to all ministers to endure in calling believers back to this imperative. It's, it's incumbent on us, of course, to respond in the correct way to this command to us. And as a footnote, it may be uh, the greatest challenge that you as a Christian have. As we have to respond correctly to this, it may be the, the most difficult thing I have as well. Not to be bound together with unbelievers is really our greatest challenge. To live a separated life is a tremendous challenge, particularly in a culture which is bombarding us with all the enticements of acceptance and tolerance and finding common ground for the good of the culture. See, we're pounded that. That's pounded on us all the time. You know, tolerate, you know, uh, come in, you know, connect, you know, accept, all of that kind of stuff, see? And, and here's the word of God saying, don't be bound together with unbelievers. Come apart and be separate, says the Lord. Right? And, and, you know, I harken back really to our three questions that we always ask when we study the scripture. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? We get to the how does this apply to me question. And we've looked at a few of them already. But that's where we, get, we really get down, as my dad used to say, to the nitty gritty. Right? It's the hard part where we have to really flesh it all out. And sometimes it's good to examine what Paul can't intend in the application. That's just as helpful, I think, as trying to figure out what he does mean as to understand what he can't possibly mean if the scripture's not gonna contradict itself, then sometimes that's helpful and that's what we'll try to do right now. 
So all this simply say that there's no context in which we understand this doesn't mean that we're to go into a cave or a monastic order, which, you know, that's been translated that way before. It doesn't mean we dump our unsafe spouse or get rid of our unsafe friends. First Corinthians chapter 7 is pretty clear about that, right? Uh, you had two people came to faith, or two people uh, were exposed to the gospel. One came to faith, one didn't. That's what we have in First Corinthians 7. And what, is, what does the scripture say? If the unsafe spouse wants to stay, let them stay, right? So it can't mean that, right? It doesn't mean that we move out of our neighborhood because we're surrounded by unbelievers. It doesn't mean that we you know, leave a school because there's you know, non-Christian teachers there. It, it, it can't mean those things because the scriptures tell us that we are to be salt and light and we're to carry out the Great Commission and, and it tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, stay, away from, you know, stay with an unbelieving spouse that wants to stay. And uh, so it's not talking about you know, marrying unequally yoked. Scripture's pretty clear uh, that you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. Actually, at the end of chapter 7, it says, you know, if your spouse dies, you're free and to remarry, but only in the Lord. And so when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, you know, chapter 5, verse 9, he says, you know, I wrote my letter, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world. Okay, so again, let's see what Paul didn't mean, can't mean, helps us to understand perhaps what he's saying here. Not to, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetousness or swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to, where? Go out of the world, right? In other words, I'm not telling you to avoid interacting with the unsaved world. That would be impossible. And so that, and that word associate is an interesting word. It's a compound verb, soon amignomi. It's, it means literally to mix up. So don't mix up. I'm telling you, I didn't tell you not to mix up with the people of the world, the covetousness, the swindlers, the idolaters, because you'd have to go out of the world. You're gonna have to mix it up with them, okay? You're gonna have to do your business in the world. You're gonna have to do things that are gonna have, have you interacting with people. So Paul's not saying when he says, don't be bound together with unbelievers, that means you can't be mixing it up with unsafe people. You have to. And in fact, you're supposed to. And to carry out the Great Commission, how would you other than to interact with unsafe people, okay? And that's not the same word as to be yoked together with. And so you have to have some discernment. But I want, to see, I want you to see the rest of the passage. I think you might find this interesting because it seems like we, we violate both ends of this. He's obviously clarifying his, his command. You can't stop associating with unbelievers. You live around them and you are supposed to be a witness to them. Verse 11 says this, actually I wrote to you, catch this, not to sunamignomi, not to mix it up with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, a covetous person, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like we arrange our lives the opposite of that, don't we? I mean, we, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to go and have you know a lot of interaction with an unsafe world. Uh, but if somebody, you know, somebody's not walking with the Lord, it's almost like we. Well, well I really need to be associating with them. And what does Paul say? If they've deliberately disobeyed the word of God, what are you supposed to do? You're not supposed to be mixing it up with them. And you're not even supposed to be eating with them. Say, well, they need the church. Yes. Yeah, they need the word of God, which is what they need. But the church needs to be pure. See? So that's an interesting contrast there. So when Paul says, don't be bound together with unbelievers, he's not saying come out of the world. There's no way you can come out of the world. And you need to be in the world to be salt and light. And you're going to have to carry out the Great Commission. But he just clarifies this statement of, of association. He's like, really what I was telling you is don't associate with somebody who says they're a Christian if they walk immorally. 
if they're in, if they walk in covetousness, if they're an idolater. So something before the Lord all the time. See, if they're, if they're a reviler, if they're a drunkard, if they're a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. So the command was actually to stop associating, stop seeing them socially, stop going out of your way to interact with who? Well, so-called believers who won't walk in accordance to the truth. Well, why? Well, if they won't listen to sound doctrine then, and their lives are dominated by those things, that's why you don't want to do that. Remember, one of the biggest accusations that religious leaders had against Jesus, remember this? Uh, when... Uh, and one they thought really carried the most weight was that Jesus was a friend of, yeah. And they thought they had him. Well, he associates with tax collectors and sinners, right? But that's precisely what he came to do, which is exactly what we have to do. Associate with tax collectors and sinners and everybody else, right? Because otherwise we can't be salt and light. So it can't mean don't associate with them, okay? So we rest easy with all of that, Okay. When they say, hey, oh, he eats with, he was a friend of sinners, he eats with wicked people, he goes to their houses, and what does Jesus answer? It's not the healthy, but the sick who need a physician, right? I've come to seek and save the lost, right? So, so we can, and we need to associate with the lost. So Paul can't mean, you know, pull out of every interaction you have with unredeemed. He can't mean that, and he doesn't want us to do that, and, and so you don't have to worry about that. What we're talking about here, though, is any linking together with an unbeliever and any religious or a spiritual enterprise, for sure. It's not possible for us to be uh, yoked together with an unbeliever in those things. We're talking about becoming partners in a joint effort. That's what we're talking about. It has to do with, uh, you know, it has to have implications in all the relationships that you build. There is a line that you don't cross with an unbeliever because you can't build lasting, strong, deep relationships with spiritual purpose with anybody other than a believer because you're gonna be at cross purposes and your, your worldview is completely opposite and your priorities are completely opposite. It's not possible to do it. And, and that's always with a commitment to the integrity and the purity of the church because that's who we are, see? And that the Lord is always interested and concerned about what the testimony of the church will be. And so he says to them, don't be bound together with unbelievers. And as we pointed out, just obviously the command prohibits Believers marrying someone who's not in Christ, as I alluded to a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to marry whom she wishes, but what? What's the, what's the caveat? Only in the Lord, right? Only in the Lord. And, and, you know, I would say to you, how much sorrow and lost ministry opportunity can be attributed to believers not following these very simple and clear commands? And just so we're clear, and we'll look at this more next week, it has to be believers entering into a close relationship with unbelievers where the worldview and the priorities and the morality would be called into question because he says at the end of verse 14, he says, for what partnership, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light and darkness. So it gets really serious here. When you start thinking about, okay, I'm gonna be a partner, I'm gonna bind together with someone uh, in a yoke, uh, in some kind of relationship that's unredeemed. Paul, Paul just says, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? That's how he describes the two worlds, see? And what fellowship has light with darkness? So, so first, what partnership can there be with righteousness and lawlessness? That's verse 14, the second part. So these are rhetorical questions. And what's the obvious answer? What's the answer to that question? None, right? There's none. There's no answer. There's no partnership. There's no uh, partnership between righteousness and lawlessness, right? Righteousness, the apostle really personifies believers there, doesn't he? That's what he's saying. Righteousness is someone who's been made righteous, those who become the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. 
See, lawlessness represents unbelievers who are not subject to the law of God, nor can they be, right? Romans 8, verse 7. So the schism is hostile, and it doesn't admit any common ground. You know, just to illustrate that, Jesus is warning his disciples about the same issue, being yoked together with unbelievers. Listen to the reasoning he gives, because Paul really echoes it in our passage. Jesus says in verse 15 of Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So just because they say they're a believer doesn't mean they are. And you have to be clear when you're getting into a partnership that you're really pulling with the same yoke, with the same worldview, with the same understanding of the authority of God and the priorities that he places there, right? So you even have to be careful about who you're joining together with if they call themselves a believer, right? And how can you tell? Well, believers will do the will of the Father, right? Believers bear good fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. So you gotta be discerning. And it's, it's not just kind of a sideline thing. Well, I'm sure it'll be all right. It's in the imperative for us in our passage. And here, Jesus is pretty clear. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, that's our word, you know? What, what relationship, what partnership is there with righteousness and lawlessness? Because that's how the Lord describes those who are not born again. See, And the second rhetorical question there as Paul really makes it clear how important the passage is. And as I said, that, that imperative, as we start with, really turns the passage on and we begin to see, okay, what are we talking about here and how important is it? And so the second rhetorical question that, that should just be an obvious indicator of the wisdom of Paul's admonition, what fellowship is there for light with darkness? And again, what's the answer, beloved? None. And that's the distinction. The born again are light, and those unborn again are darkness. And by light, Paul just means a Christian who's seen the truth, and by darkness, a person who prefers to live in a spiritual oblivion, right? Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are, right? And so, again, Paul just says it's just obvious stuff here, right? You don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Because it's trying to put a partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. It's trying to be fellowship between light and darkness, see? That's the truth of the unbeliever. They refuse to face up to the reality that, and, and they love darkness rather than light and true fellowship with him is impossible as it is undesirable. So they can't have it and they don't even want it. So why would the believer be yoked together with an unbeliever? Paul just makes that very obvious with rhetorical questions. You know, you've got a really wonderful benefit. You know, a God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness is the one who's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You have that. That's your position. The light is turned on. See? The one who's shown the light out of the darkness is the one who's shown in our hearts and gave us the light of knowledge, true understanding of how the world works and what it's all about and what we're pulling for and how it's all going to end and, and what's going to happen to all this material stuff that we've accumulated and all that. See? You have the light on. Unbelievers don't have that light on. See? You have a benefit the world doesn't have. And what fellowship is that noun koinonia, 
can you can you imagine what fellowship that's the word for true spiritual fellowship the thing that we enjoy weekly here what fellowship does light and darkness have the holy spirit says to paul when you join together for a project with the unredeemed really trying to bring together spiritual light and spiritual darkness into an intimate need meeting connection and it's not possible so as we'll see these things of which you know, do not be bound together with unbelievers really starts off these things are just obvious truths they're axiomatic right there's no fellowship there which means they should be self-evident truths that don't need any proof but it's hard isn't it we live in the world we function in the world. We have an attraction to making money. We have attraction to being established in some way to, to make our name great. And what we have to be aware of is the Lord has prohibited in very, uh, very non-negotiable terms, yoking together with an unbeliever for any project where you and they will be pulling together to accomplish something. If it's an unbeliever, it's not possible for you. That's gotta be out the door. And so these are self-evident truths. Paul admonishes them, he corrects them, and then he says, it should be obvious to you that you can't make opposites the same, and those are all opposites. And Lord willing, we're going to look at the rest of the rhetorical questions here uh, in the next weeks to come and really point out the irrationality of believers and pagans working together. There's no possibility for people in these two kingdoms to be bound together in a common work, in a common partnership, in a common fellowship, in any kind of harmony or commonality. That's The Lord says no. Obviously, you need discernment, and I pray that you'll ask for discernment. Many of uh, your relationships are complex that you work with and work in. But I think that you can begin to understand, as I can, the clear imperative from Paul and how that will apply as you walk through your life. You want to be in a place where uh, the Lord can bless you and not chasing you. You want to be a place where you have the richness that the Lord had planned for you and not settling for something that he hasn't planned for you. And so these are the starts, not an easy passage, obviously, to work through, not an easy passage to grasp hold of. There are very clear passages here, and what Paul has said can't apply makes it a little bit better for us to understand, but it's still going to require the Lord to give you uh, tremendous wisdom as you do what you need to do. The command's very clear. It's connected to the world as a worldly process, marriage, business venture, contract that binds you or yokes you together as equals with unbelievers then you are unequally yoked and you are not to enter into that kind of relationship. That part is clear. And so the Lord add richness to your understanding as we uh, go through the rest of these passages. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We've got a uh, quick uh, meeting right after this. And uh, so we want to leave a little bit of time for that. Lord, we thank you today for this time to be in your word. We're especially grateful for uh, passages that are difficult as we've made it our effort to go verse by verse, uh, even word by word through the word of God. Uh, that you have given us, that you determined will not come back void, but will accomplish all that you sent it to accomplish, then that means if we go verse by verse, then we're going to get to hard parts that perhaps we would skip over if we could. But we can't, and I'm glad. And Lord, I pray that you'll give us understanding, as there are many uh, here who are business uh, people, many here who are in the academic world, many who are in the work world, uh, connected to all kinds of things, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to apply what, you, what the Word of God says, what does it mean by what it says, and then apply it to us clearly without trying to wiggle around it, without trying to explain it away. Your Holy Spirit may make it clear to us, and we ask for wisdom, and you do not hold back, but give to all men liberally. And you don't give us a hard time for not knowing. So we ask your wisdom to apply these things that we might understand them clearly and do them and correct uh, uh, places perhaps where we have not done them. 
We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.